Well, we're in uh, Luke chapter 5 today. And what I'd like to do is, is instead of reading verses 1 through 32, which is our text for this morning, I'm going to read the pieces of it as we go through the message. So I'd like to just start by reading a few verses. It's, it's just the last few. And I wonder if you'd look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. I'd like to read 30, 31, and 32. When I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Luke chapter 5, I'll begin in verse number 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we truly give you thanks. We give you thanks that you sent your son, and we give you thanks that those he called to be his disciples weren't the upper crust. They were sinners, tax collectors, people like us. We give thanks that when your son came, he didn't come to call the righteous as though there are any. He came to call sinners to repentance. And so we ask that you would teach us today about your son. Confirm in our hearts his deity and help us to follow after him as disciples. We pray in his name, amen. There was a man named George Whitfield. He was probably the most famous religious figure of the 18th century. Newspapers called him, quote, the marvel of the age. Perhaps it's because he was able to captivate crowds of thousands with his unconventional, extemporaneous, powerful sermons. It's estimated that in his lifetime, he preached nearly 18,000 sermons to more than 10 million people in both Britain and the United States. Now, while some might recognize the name George Whitfield, maybe it's from your study of the first great awakening in our own history, many have never heard about his preaching experiment you say, preaching experiment? Yes, his preaching experiment. You see, he was a bit of an anomaly for his day. Not just because of his bombastic preaching style, but because of his unusual preaching environment. You see, George Whitfield lived in an era of formalism. I mean, when you thought about church in George Whitfield's day, you thought about robes and vestures, you thought about high church rituals, you thought about cathedrals, but not George Whitfield. He ignored all of the pomp and circumstance, and he preached to common people outdoors. This was unheard of. No building, no chapel, no cathedral, just outside. And he'd preach to people outside. Now, this wasn't by choice, at least at first. 
You see, he came to the Americas for three months. He preached here and then went back to England. But when he got back to England, all the pulpits were closed to him. The Anglican church would not let him preach there. They made what was called a pulpit ban. And so the pulpit ban pushed Whitfield outdoors. He began to preach to crowds in the open air. This was his preaching experiment. This is what he wrote in his journal after preaching outside for the very first time. This is what he wrote. I hastened to Kingswood. There were about 10,000 people to hear me. The trees and the hedges were full. All was hush when I began. The sun shone bright and God enabled me to preach for an hour with great power and so loudly that all, I was told, could hear me. Miners just up from the mines listened and tears flowed, making white gutters down their coal black faces. My friends, that day and many thereafter, God did a great work through outdoor preaching. But do you realize that George Whitfield wasn't the inventor of outdoor preaching? I mean, he thought that this is a new practice, but really he was just reviving something that Jesus had, did, had done many centuries before. And that's what we see actually in the opening of our text. Jesus was pulpit banned from certain synagogues. I mean, if you want a case study, remember back to Nazareth. Do you remember? He stood up, he preaches from Isaiah 61, and they're like, get out of here. They were so upset at his preaching in that synagogue that they drove him out of the town and were going to throw him off of a cliff. So Jesus got pulpit banned from some of these high formal religious synagogues, but he just began preaching outside. In our text this morning of Luke chapter 5, Jesus made a boat his pulpit. He taught from the water. You have this steep inlet in the Capernaum shoreline. It forms this natural amphitheater. And there were crowds lining the shores as Jesus was in this boat, just a little off of the shore, teaching the word of God. Look at verses one through three in your Bibles, if you would. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or also known as the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, this wasn't just some story that Luke is telling about how Jesus was innovative and he preached outside about, about creative settings for religious oratory. That's not why Luke is including this text here. What he's about to do is use this circumstance on the lakeside to unfold the first of three consecutive miracles that attest to the divinity of Jesus. When we start Luke chapter five, what's gonna unfold here as Jesus is in this boat is gonna be a great miracle. It's gonna be one of three that all point to the fact that Jesus is God. 
Look at his claim to deity. That's really the start of this text. Jesus' claim to deity. It's alluded first in this boat scene. The passage says in verse number four, take a look at verse number four. When Jesus finished speaking, he said to Simon, I love this part. Jesus is done doing his preaching thing, looks over at the fisherman whose boat he's in. He says to Simon, put out in the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Now, when you hear that, you shouldn't be thinking that Jesus had a long day of preaching and now he needs a little bit of R&R. He's like, yeah, disciples, let's go fishing. I think we need a little bit of a break here. That's not what's going on here. What you need to catch when you read that is the irony of Jesus' instruction. A carpenter turned preacher tells a fisherman how to fish. That's what you should see here in this text. One commentator put it this way. Peter's the experienced fisherman. Jesus is a handyman. Peter has been out all night. Jesus just got into the boat. Peter hasn't caught anything. Jesus thinks the fish are biting. Peter's the one who had to row, even though he's tired from a full work shift, but Jesus sits in the stern of the boat. You can almost hear Jesus, yeah, just, just head out there. I think this is a great afternoon for fishing. And you can almost see Peter rolling his eyes. Have you ever had someone do that? I mean, whatever your field of specialty is, whatever your job is, you have someone who comes in who's never done your job, has no idea what they're talking about, and they begin to tell you how to do it. Have you ever had that experience? And you're just like biting your tongue. That's what I picture going on here with, with Peter. Peter's thinking to himself, this is the wrong place, and this is the wrong time to go fishing. It was a well-known fact that in the Sea of Galilee, it was at night in the shallow water that you caught fish, not in the daytime, in the deep water. So in verse number five, look at what Simon says. Simon Peter, he says, Master, we, we toiled all night and, and we caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. You can almost hear Peter humoring Jesus at this point. It's, it's reluctant trust at best. Jesus' instructions don't make sense. Now, I feel a little bit critical of Peter at this point. He has, to, he has to include this little caveat. Listen, Jesus, we fished all night and didn't catch anything. But I'm gonna tell you something. I would rather have reluctant trust than no trust at all. Sometimes I feel like I'm falling in life and I just hope I fall in the right direction. That's it. And that, here's Peter. I mean, he's bumbling and tripping. We, we, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. But at your word, Jesus... And I just hope, like, if I have reluctant trust, if I have weak faith, I just hope, I just hope I'll bumble my way towards Jesus. And Peter seems to do that here. This is when something crazy happens in this story. Look at what it says in verses six and seven. When they let down their nets, they enclosed a large number of fish, fish and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Here you have a harvest of fish that is so immense that the nets are beginning to tear. 
They have so many fish, they're trying to get them into the boat, and the boats are about to sink. Now, you may think to yourself, these were probably little canoes, but that's not right. There, was, there were these two brothers in 1986. They were from a kibbutz, Ginnasar. They discovered the remains of an ancient fishing boat on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. They began this excavation process. They get this boat out, and now you can see it in a museum in Israel. Later today, Google it. You can see the remains of this fishing boat. It's dated to the time of Jesus. It's, it's really an amazing archaeological discovery. What were these boats like? Little canoes? No, my friends. These fishing boats were about 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide. These are pretty substantial boats. And you have to think to yourself that they were so full of so many fish that both of them are about to sink. Now, what are we supposed to think at this point? Wow, first-timer's luck. I guess that happens. Every squirrel finds a nut. I guess it happens. Pretty, pretty amazing coincidence. The carpenter amazingly got these fish. No, that's not what we're supposed to see here. What we're supposed to see here is that Jesus miraculously controls nature. You're supposed to read this story and say, wait a second. Jesus is able to control the sea? Wait a second. Jesus can control these fish? This was an expression of Jesus' power over the sea and the fish. He's not just an average carpenter. He's not a mere rabbi. He's the son of God. That's what you're supposed to see here. You're supposed to see the creator controlling his creation. That's what you see in this miracle. And that's why Peter falls down before Jesus like one falls down before God. Do you see it in the text? Look at verse number eight. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. From this first miracle, we're supposed to conclude that Jesus is divine. But if controlling nature isn't enough to convince you, if if Luke's subtle, not so subtle argument doesn't get you at this point, then he gives you another one to prove to you the deity of Christ. His second miracle that he includes in this account is how Jesus miraculously heals diseases. And this one's amazing. That's what we see in our text in verses 12 through 14. Let me just read verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, again, Luke's not worried about telling you which city, what day. He's just bringing another one of Jesus' miracles to bear to help you see that Jesus is the Son of God. His claim to deity is true. So while he's in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now this is interesting because it describes this man 
has been full of leprosy in verse 12. I want you to underline that because it probably means he's been sick for a while. It's very advanced. It's especially virulent. He's riddled with the disease. He's full of leprosy. Now, let me tell you what the Old Testament law required of those who had leprosy. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. Let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now I want you to pause for a second and feel the gravity of this man's situation. I want you to understand his plight. I want you to know what it would feel like to find a lump, to have some bleeding, to have a pain that you can't explain. And you go to the doctor and they take some tests and it comes back that you have a terrible disease. Dr. Andrew McDonald, he was the founder and the medical superintendent of the Itu leper colony in Nigeria. He worked there from 1923 to 1954 and this is what he wrote about the lepers that he worked with. The leper is sick in mind as well as body. For some reason, there's an attitude to leprosy different from the attitude to any other disfiguring disease. It's associated with shame and horror and carries in some mysterious way a sense of guilt, although innocently acquired like most contagious troubles, shunned and despised, frequently lepers consider taking their own lives, and some do. Folks, you need to understand that when the diagnosis came back that you had leprosy in the first century, you weren't just ill. You were an outcast. You didn't just lose your health. You lost your family. You lost your friends. You lost your job. You lost your home. You lost your community. You lost everything in a moment. Lepers were hated by others until they came to hate themselves. They were ostracized and rejected until their hearts were filled with this bitter form of self-shame. They were self-despising untouchables. Untouchables. Because they had leprosy. Now that word's an interesting word, isn't it? Untouchables. Do you know they still use the word today? It's the name given to members of the lowest caste in the Hindu hierarchy. To be a Hindu in India is to enter a caste system. It's one of the world's longest surviving forms of social stratification, 1,500 years. Though the government would say that the caste system doesn't, quote, legally exist today, just ask any of the untouchables 
They'll tell you how the animals are treated better than them. Hinduism, the religion of 80% of India's population, what that means is 1.124 billion people. Hinduism and its ancient forms of discrimination overpower the modern law. The 1,500-year-old caste system follows this basic precept. All men are created unequal. Tom O'Neill you wonder, does this still have Tom O'Neill in his 2003 National Geographic article about these literal outcasts states this, quote, the untouchables are considered too impure, too polluted to rank as worthy human beings. They're shunned, insulted, banned from temples and higher caste homes, made to eat and drink from separate utensils in public places, and in extreme but not uncommon cases, are raped, burned, lynched, and gunned down. These untouchables are condemned as unclean from their first breath. That happens in India today, and I wonder if that's how the leprous man felt in his society and untouchable. Now what is shocking about our text, what Luke does in showing us Jesus is he, he shows us this man who is quote, full of leprosy, but this man does something risky. And you may not catch it by merely just reading over the text, the man does something risky. You see, it says that Jesus is, is in one of these cities. And then this man comes to him Remember, the untouchables were supposed to stay out of the cities. They had to stay away from people. But this man risks it all to find the one who has power to heal. Look at verse number 12 again. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him. And listen to what he says. Listen carefully to what the leper says. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The leper doesn't refer to Jesus as healer or rabbi, physician. He calls Jesus what? Lord. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He believes that Jesus is the master over all things, including disease. Jesus isn't just some other guy. He's the son of God. Jesus isn't just another try. He is this man's only hope. Now, this is where the story gets good. Look at verse number 13. Jesus stretched out his hand. And you need to see this in cinematic slow-mo, okay? You have a guy full of leprosy, risking it all to come to Jesus. He's not supposed to be around anyone. He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out his hand. You're almost wanting to scream. At this point in the story, you're almost wanting to scream, stop, Jesus, stop! Don't you know he, he's his leprosy? You're gonna catch it. D don't do that. Jesus stretched out his hands, verse 13, and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. 
I have this picture in my mind of this man full of leprosy who hadn't had human contact for years. His parents, his children, his brothers, sisters, spouse, friends, they all had to keep their distance. You need to see a man who had no hug, no handshake, no kiss, no embrace, not even the brush of one human's shoulder against another as you pass by in the street. He had no human touch for years until Jesus reached out and touched the untouchable. That's what happens here. Now, in theory, this action should have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. And worse than that, perhaps it could have made him liable to catch the disease. But what we find in the account is the exact opposite happens. Instead of uncleanness polluting Jesus, Jesus' wholeness purifies the defiled. John Calvin put it this way, there is such purity in Christ. Listen to this, friends. That he can absorb all uncleanness and pollution and not contaminate himself. Folks, isn't that good news for us? It means this. It means no one is too dirty to come to Jesus. Anyone who's unclean, all of those who are full of shame, those who've been shunned, the self-loathing, the ostracized, they can come to Christ and they can be healed. Do you, know, do you know how it feels to be freezing cold? I mean, you're super cold. Maybe you went snowmobiling for a while and you're just chilled to the bone. Or perhaps you went skiing and you were out so long you can't feel your toes or your fingers anymore. Or some of you kids in here, you decided to build a snowman. Do you want to build a snowman? I'm not gonna sing it. I won't do it. I refuse. Do you want to build a snowman and you're out there building a snowman for so long that you're like an icicle at the end? And then you go inside and to your joyful surprise, a family member has just poured a hot cup of cocoa. Do you know what that's like? You're freezing cold from skiing. You've been snowmobiling for a long time. You've built a snowman and you're, you're like an icicle and someone hands you a hot cup cocoa. I mean, just holding the cup makes you feel good, doesn't it? You're like, oh, this is good. And then you take a sip of this sugary goodness, this nectar of life, and it flows down your throat, and the warmth begins to radiate throughout you, and you instantly feel better. I wonder if that's what it was like for this leper. Ostracized, out in the cold, so to speak, in life. And Jesus touched him. And the power and the healing of Jesus just flowed into him and cleansed him. It's like the radiation of wholeness through his whole being. And he's cleansed. This compassionate and loving Jesus made the sick whole. The one who was clean healed the utterly defiled. Who could do such a thing but God himself? That's what we're supposed to be concluding from this miracle. 
We're supposed to come to this conclusion. Jesus is divine. He can even heal the leper. At this point in the text, if controlling nature and healing diseases aren't enough to convince you of Jesus' divinity, Luke leverages one more miracle. It's how Jesus miraculously forgives sins. That's the next part of the text. This final miracle supports the fact that Jesus is divine. And it has to do with a paralyzed man and his persistent friends. You see it in verses 17 through 26. Jesus is teaching and the scribes and Pharisees are scrutinizing. Look at verse number 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching. These leading religious figures are scrutinizing. The house is packed with people tighter than a public transportation bus in Lima, Peru. Have you experienced that? I have. I was almost pushed out of the bus. It was so full. I was like at the door. They barely closed the door without closing it on my you know, like, yeah. and then they're like pushing me nearly out of the door. Listen, this house was cram full. It was packed with people wanting to hear Jesus. That's what we get in this text. There's some friends who have another who's paralyzed, and it says, verse 18, some men were bringing a bed, on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof. Oh, we got a good idea. Let's go up on the roof. And let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, this must have been quite an interruption. I read this and I just concluded this. Jesus is an amazing teacher. And it's because I do teaching, you know, but I am so weak-minded that little things throw me off sometimes. It might be a baby crying, a phone ringing, someone's audiobook begins to play in the middle of a sermon. That's especially, you know, wonderful. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I just get derailed. You know, I don't know what I'm thinking about or talking about or what to say next. You know, I'm, I'm derailed, but not Jesus. He's like this amazing teacher. Do you realize what's going on in the story? Jesus is teaching and twigs and pieces of mortar begin to fall from the ceiling and Jesus teaches. Uh, he's teaching and all of a sudden beams start being moved over, like lifted off the wall, kind of moved over overhead, things falling. He, he just keeps teaching. And then this tops it off. This is like, I don't know how you imagine this, but I'm like, here he is. He's teaching his packed room, little twigs and stuff falling. Things start moving. Light starts coming through. And then you've got these four people up on the roof. And somehow they have to attach ropes to this makeshift stretcher and somehow get it over the hole they just made in the roof and drop it down. You know that couldn't have been quiet. They weren't like, shh, shh, shh. No, they're like, come on, George, lift it up. You know, and Jesus is trying to teach, you know. And they're trying to get it over the spot, and one guy doesn't do it quite right. And the guy, you know, the guy in the stretch is like, whoa, 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 he's about to fall off. I mean, it's a mess. And Jesus is there, and he's just teaching. 
and he keeps teaching, and what happens is this thing starts to lower down. Like, can you imagine right now, we're in the middle of a sermon, and all of a sudden, something starts lowering down from the roof. Jesus is just teaching. And this is, again, this is my imagination. You're saying, Luke, you're, you're reading a little bit into this text. Well, I did research what the roofs were made of, what it would have been like to take it off, and how much of a commotion this would have been. I just want you to imagine Jesus standing there in this packed room, this size, and he st- kind of stopped right in front of Jesus right here. And then finally Jesus is like, okay, guys, okay, okay. Just lower him the rest of the way down, all right? Find some space. And he, he gets this guy who's crippled, down onto the floor. And he looks at this crippled man. And it's as though Jesus can see right down into his soul. And what he sees there is the faith of this man and his friends up there. Such faith, they believe that Jesus is not just an average person. Not merely an intellectual teacher. They believe that Jesus is the son of God who can actually heal a crippled person. I'm going to tell you something. In my whole life experience, I've never had anyone bring a crippled person to me and say, Lucas, would you heal them? It's never happened. But these people brought him to Jesus because they believed that he was divine. He looks down into this man's soul and he sees his faith And so this is what happens in the story. With eyes of compassion, Jesus looks at this man and he meets his deepest need right there. Do you know what Jesus says to him? Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now that's supposed to shock us in the story. Because we've been watching this paralyzed man get lowered down and we're thinking his deepest need must be that Jesus shows his divinity by healing this man and making him stand up and walk. But no, Jesus' divinity is going to be shown in a different way. His divinity is going to be shown by his ability to forgive sins. Paralysis wasn't this man's biggest problem. Sin was. So Jesus looks at him and says, your sins, verse number 20, your sins be forgiven you. Now you have to realize at this point in Jewish history, the religious leaders, all these scribes and Pharisees who were there scrutinizing Jesus, they had their own plan for how they were going to change the situation of Israel being oppressed by Rome. The religious leaders had come up with a way that they were going to reverse the situation. They were going to get God to finally deliver his people and crush Roman oppression. The scribes and Pharisees already had a plan, and this is the way it was. They believed that in order to bring in God's kingdom, what they needed to do was intensify the Old Testament laws. What we need to do is we need to get all of the people of Israel to start following God's laws, even down to more specific details. So what they did is go back to the Old Testament as if 613 laws weren't enough. They came up with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more about how to apply them. Because they believed if Israel could scrupulously follow the legal demands of God's law and all the additional applications that they put upon the people, then God would shine his face upon Israel, judge the oppressive pagans, and finally liberate his people. That was the plan of the religious leaders at the time of Christ. 
But I want you to realize something. Jesus had a different plan. He knew that people had a deeper problem. The oppression of Rome wasn't the real problem. It was the oppression of sin and death. That's the real enemy that needed to be dealt with. I read about this disruptive demonstration that happened in England last year. There was this protest. They were going to try to oppose the high fuel taxes. And so over in England, what happened is there was this group and they got in their cars and got on some of the, and they coordinated this. They got on some of the major roadways and they decided to go super slow and block all the lanes of traffic. It was like a moving barricade to all of these main arteries in England. Now, I want you to imagine that the Pharisees were doing a protest of their own. The scribes and Pharisees had a plan for how they were gonna finally get their way and, and turn the nation around. And you can almost imagine if they were a group of cars and they're heading southward very slow. And this is gonna be the plan to turn around Israel when all of a sudden they meet a group of cars that are going northward and stop them. The northward group of cars is Jesus and his followers. And they don't like the fact that their demonstration has been stopped. Jesus has this different plan of how the kingdom is going to come to bear. Not by putting a greater burden of the law upon people, but by liberating them from sin by his grace. That's what's going to take place. So here in the presence of these critical scrutinizers, Jesus looks at this lame man and he doesn't say, you need to start following the law more. He says, your sins be forgiven you. Now that didn't go over very well with these religious leaders. Look at verse number 21. The scribes and Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, they're looking at him and thinking to themselves, who do you think you are? God? Jesus said, amen. No. <laughs> Jesus knew their hearts. He perceived their skepticism. So in verse number 23, this is what Jesus says. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. Now stop and think about the question. Which one's easier to say? The first one actually is easier to say. It's easier just to merely say your sins be forgiven you because there's no empirical way to know whether or not that's happened. It's invisible. How do you know whether your sins are forgiven? I don't know. You don't know. See, I'm the son of God. I just say sins are forgiven and no one can prove me wrong. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk. If you say rise and walk, then suddenly everyone's watching. Is it going to happen or not? Jesus says, but that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Listen, anyone can say your sins are forgiven you. But how do we know that they really are? Well, to prove that he had the divine authority to forgive sins, Jesus healed this man's body. 
And in doing so, Jesus exercised a privilege that only belonged to God. I love how C.S. Lewis captures the essence of this so well. Just track with what Lewis says here. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description that we could give his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. This makes sense only if he really was God whose laws had been broken. My friends, Jesus can forgive sins because he's the gracious son of God. He can pardon the guilty and he can cleanse the sinner because he truly is the Holy One. Luke wants us to think about these miracles. Jesus' miraculous control over nature. Jesus' miraculous healing of disease. Jesus' miraculous forgiveness of sins. He, want us, he wants us to think about them so that we will conclude that Jesus' claim to divinity is valid. Jesus is God. And since that's the case, he has the right to call disciples. So the first part of the text is all about Jesus' claim to deity. And as he makes that clear, it grounds his call to discipleship. And this is where the message lands. Because Jesus is God, the true son of God, all divine, all human, living amongst us, God in fleshed. He has the right to call people to follow him. Surely the incarnate son of God should have followers. Surely he should, he should be surrounded by people who will advance his cause and extend his name. And so in this passage, Jesus calls some disciples. And we're supposed to discover that what he does here is a little bit surprising. And I think as we, listen friends, as we work our way through the book of Luke, you're gonna find that a lot of what Jesus does is very surprising. What Jesus does here in the calling of disciples is he actually calls rather ordinary people. He, he doesn't take the upper crust. You're, you're wondering to yourself, we've been thinking all about his divinity. Why didn't he use some omniscience and pick some better people to be his disciples? Why does Jesus gather such a motley crew of sinners to be his apostles? Well, I think there's a few things we need to understand that will encourage us as we think about Jesus' call to discipleship. First, Jesus calls disciples who are, listen to the description, Jesus calls disciples who are unworthy and sick. You're thinking, he's going to find the people who have the most together. He's going to find the people that are most well, that people have the highest esteem of. Nope. He, he calls disciples who are unworthy and sick. In Salt Lake City here, 
a place that's filled with people trying to be worthy, striving to eternally progress, bearing under the constant weight of wondering whether they've served enough, given enough, testified enough, baptized enough, whether they are enough. In a city like ours, there is some good news about genuine disciples. Jesus calls the broken. Jesus calls the needy, the hurting. He calls normal sinful people like you and me to be his disciples. Here in our text, we see how Jesus transforms the self-sufficient man named Simon and the low life named Levi. We know them better as Peter and Matthew. In our text, we see how he makes them part of the inner 12 apostles. Sometimes we may think, we're too sinful to be useful. But thanks be to God, he can take crooked sticks and draw straight lines. And he does that with people like us. Look at the calling of Peter. We already saw how he, he reluctantly went out into the deep water. He skeptically cast out his nets. And then he's shocked and amazed by all these fish that nearly sink his boats. Picture it in your minds. The boats are filled with flopping fish. The crew is scam, scrambling. They're trying to secure this catch. And where's Peter? Peter isn't counting the fish. Peter has fallen down before Jesus. Verse 8 when Simon Peter saw this, he saw this miraculous catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You can't use me. I'm not worthy. I can't even be around you. You don't know how sinful I am. Peter caught a vision of who Jesus truly was. Jesus is the son of God. And in that moment, he realized who he truly was. He was a worthless sinner. Calvin, 16th century reformer, said this, man never attains to a true knowledge of himself until he has contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look at himself. That's what happened to Peter. He caught a glimpse of God in the face of Jesus, and in that moment... Peter was put in his place. Peter suddenly understood he wasn't worthy to be in Jesus' presence. He asked the Lord, just depart. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. But I love what happens. Jesus doesn't turn Peter away. Instead, he draws Peter in. He forgives him and he commissions him. Coming to understand, listen, my friends, coming to understand that you're not worthy is what makes you perfectly suited to follow Jesus. Coming to understand you're not worthy is what makes you perfectly suited to follow Jesus. Verse number 10, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. In other words, Peter, I don't need you to be whole before you come to me. I'm gonna make you whole. And I want you to go find other people who are in need of healing. It's almost as if this large catch of fish symbolized the many who would come to Jesus. But it wasn't going to be because of the wisdom and strength of those disciples. It was going to be because of the power of Jesus. He was going to be the one to make this happen. So Peter, 
an unlikely disciple. There's another one in the text. It's Levi. Remember, Jesus calls people who are unworthy and sick. Here's Levi. We know him later as Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. He's a tax collector here in our text. And when you hear tax collector, you should just say, boo, like that. That's what you should say because that's what they would have said in the first century. Tax collector, boo. Because they were some of the most hated people in all of that culture. They were Jews who worked for the Romans to fleece fellow Jews and then skim some off the top for themselves. They were regarded as traitors and exploiters. One commentary put it this way, robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classed together. Another commentator said this, it would be hard to imagine a more loathsome and hated person in all of society. Surely, these were the kinds of people the Messiah would oppose and punish when he arrived. But to our surprise, Jesus calls a tax collector to be one of his 12 apostles. Look at verse 27. Take a look. He went out, saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Folks, Jesus doesn't need worthy, whole, healthy people to be his followers. He calls broken, wounded, sinful people, like Peter, like Levi, like us, to be his disciples. Not only does Jesus call disciples who are unworthy and sick, but we see from this text that Jesus calls disciples to unreserved loyalty. We're almost finished here, but look at these last characteristics of disciples. He wants disciples who have unreserved loyalty towards him. It's interesting to note the response of Peter and note the response of Levi. They're like exactly the same. Look at verse number 11. When they brought their boats to land, and there's a group of them, there's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They left everything and followed him, verse number 11. Look at verse number 27. Here's Levi. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Jesus calls us to leave everything and follow him. In other words, don't clutch onto your life and your stuff and all the things that you want, and then pretend that you're a follower of Jesus. Stop living your life on your terms and pretending that you're a follower of Jesus. When Jesus called disciples, they left everything and followed him. In other words, are you like this when it comes to following Jesus? Can you take your money and your time, your career, your relationships, your future, and your present, and can you go like this to Jesus? Whatever you want here, it's all yours. I'll leave everything and follow you. Can you say that to Jesus this morning? I'll leave everything and follow you. That's what Peter did. That's, that's what Levi did. Because it, it wouldn't work any other way. Can you imagine Jesus, and, or Jesus saying, come follow me, and Peter and his associates picking up their 27-foot boat and saying, we're coming. Oh, just a second, we need a rest. Okay, we're coming. 
Can you, can you imagine them hauling around nets and a boat from town to town saying, we're gonna follow you, Jesus. We just need to bring along all of our stuff too. Can you picture Levi saying, oh, j- just a second, Jesus, and he, he goes and wheels out a dolly and he, he pushes his tax booth up a little bit and sticks the dolly underneath and then tips it back and says, all right, I'm coming, Jesus. And Jesus goes from town to town with this bunch of goofball disciples carrying a 27-foot boat and a tax booth. No, no, my friends, that doesn't work. It would have hindered their discipleship, distracted them from the mission. It would have taken their eyes off Jesus. And I want to tell you, that's what happens to some of us. Leave everything and follow him and him alone. Jesus calls disciples to unreserved Loyalty. There's this old chorus about following Christ. We, we actually sang part of it this morning. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. You know, I sang that when I was a kid. How many of you came across that song when you were young sometime in your life? And I I remember singing that, but I never knew the story behind that song. You see, it originated in Northeast India, in the region of Assam. About 150 years ago, Christian missionaries went to that area. It was comprised of aggressive, primitive tribes. They were actually, many of them were headhunters because the men would show their value to be meritable, Like you would have a higher chance of being married if you collected heads. And so it was animal skulls and human skulls that they would decorate inside their huts. It was a primitive and aggressive tribal region and 150 years ago these Christian missionaries go there. They were not welcomed. However, a man named Naksang from the Garo tribe, his wife and his two sons believed the gospel and were converted. This Indian man's newfound faith was contagious and soon many villagers began to accept Christ as the son of God. The local chief, however, was very angry at what was going on. So he summons all the villagers to come and he brings this man and his wife and his two sons and he looks at the man and he calls him to publicly renounce his faith in Jesus or they would suffer execution. The Indian believer was emboldened in that moment and he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged, the chief ordered his archers to kill his two sons. They were shot there, lay dying on the ground, and the chief asked the man again, will you deny your faith? You've lost your children. Will you lose your wife too? And the man replied, though no one joins me, still I will follow. The chief is infuriated at this point. He orders the wife to be killed. I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of sorrow and in the face of death, with tears running down his eyes, the man says, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And he killed that man that day. But his faith was not forgotten and many people saw him follow Jesus right to the death and many were saved that day and in the months to follow. This man had unreserved loyalty to Jesus. And soon his last words, Naksang's last words were put into a song that was later translated into English, which we still sing today. 
Jesus' disciples are those who are unworthy and sick. But he calls them to unreserved loyalty so that they can go and make other disciples along the way. And with this, we close. Peter and also Levi weren't supposed to get the good news and keep it to themselves. Instead, they were supposed to share it. The text says that Peter was a fisherman, but now he would be catching men instead of fish. Levi was a tax collector, but now he'd be collecting people instead of money. The call of discipleship wasn't a cul-de-sac, it was a freeway. Verse number 10, Jesus tells Peter, from now on, you will be catching men. Verse 29, Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table. Literally, he wanted to invite people to come and hear about this Jesus. Now, Peter and Levi, as we'll find out in the rest of the book of Luke, they're not perfect people. They're just forgiven people. The path of discipleship is a path of changing in the right direction. It's embracing a pathway that heads towards Jesus. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, the life of discipleship is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we're growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Peter, Levi, and hopefully the rest of us are on a path of following Jesus. Jesus' claim to deity. Jesus' call to discipleship. Will you believe him? Will you follow him? Let's close in prayer. Father, we give thanks this morning that we have a chance to learn more about the deity of the Son, to revel in his miraculous work. He was not just an average person. He did things no one can do but God. And because he is the Son of God, he calls us to follow him. And so, Lord, with unreserved loyalty, acknowledging our own brokenness, but our desire to follow you. Would you stir up in our hearts a desire to be your disciples? Would you cause us to follow you? We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, this morning, I'd like to close with a song. The song that we sang, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, and I want to close by asking that you would make this your prayer. Like, would you follow him? Is he enough for you to follow him? He is truly the son of God. Believe in him. He calls you to follow. So be his disciple today. Would you stand with me as we close with a song?